Well, good morning. Welcome to the 930 service. Glad to see you guys are here. Now, when most people read the book of Job, they become fixated on Job's suffering, right? We've talked over the last couple of weeks about how Job was this truly righteous, innocent, undeserving man. And in the space of maybe 10 days or two weeks, he ended up losing his business, his estate, his reputation, and of course, most tragically, his family before losing his own health. Job took major damage, okay? So when people think about Job and the story of Job, they think about suffering, they think about loss, they think about heartache and tragedy, understandably so. But that's not the part of the story that I get intrigued by if I'm just honest with you, okay? I hate all of the loss that Job experienced. It's awful, okay? And maybe because it's so awful, I don't even like to focus on that part. Instead, you know what I find myself asking? Why is the devil in heaven in Job chapter number one? That doesn't seem right. What's going on there? Why does it seem like Satan is able to manipulate God into performing this test, this experiment on poor Job. Not just once, but twice. Like, I know the devil's crafty, but he shouldn't be able to convince God to do this, right? These are the kind of questions that run through my mind. I'm sure you don't ever have these sorts of thoughts, I know. I ask questions like, how often does this type of conversation between God and the devil go on? Is this like a regular thing? Was this a one-time ever kind of thing? Uh, Most importantly, the questions that are in my mind, the question that's in my mind when I read the story of Job is like, how can I stay in stealth mode? Like, how can I be anonymous, hidden? I don't want the devil to know my name. I don't want him to ever think about Dan Sueza down in Calgary. I just want to do my thing. I want to serve Jesus under the radar, okay? I want to keep my name out of his mouth so that I don't end up in a situation like poor Job ended up going through. You ever have those sorts of questions? If you read the book of Job and you kind of read it with an inquisitive mind, and hey, listen, anytime you read the Bible, you should have that sort of inquisitive mind. You should be asking all sorts of questions. Like, why does it say this? And what might that mean? And what it, what, why is this little detail included? Every bit of the word of God is there for a reason. And so that sort of inquisitiveness actually can unlock a lot of the scriptures if you will read it kind of from that perspective. In fact, one of the reasons that I think most people uh, don't read the Bible is because they think it's boring. And the reason that they think it's boring is because they read it in a boring way. If you were to really start to to question and ask questions and dig in and go beyond just the surface explanation of what's going on in any sort of uh, particular text, you would find it's just so deep. It's so rich. It's so wonderful and beautiful. And so I think we need to read the scripture with this sort of, of, um, openness and inquisitiveness to what's really going on. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on the role of Satan in Job's story. I want to talk about the devil this morning, okay? And along the way, we're going to learn a lot about the role of Satan, not just in Job's story, but also in our world today. And hey, even in our lives as well. What we're going to discover is that most of what we think we know about the devil is actually not from the scripture. It's from pop culture, 
It's from movies. It's from cartoons. It's from, you know, Dante's Inferno and all of these different things. Most of what we know about the devil is actually not biblical. So we need to separate the wheat from the chaff there. And then what we're going to realize, and boy, this is going to be a hard one. So I'm going to just challenge you guys to stay with me when we get to this point later on in the message. We're going to see that the person most likely to ruin my life is a whole lot closer to home than I care to admit. Okay, we'll get there in a minute. So let's start reading. Let's go to Job chapter number one. And we're actually just gonna walk line by line through this um, episode in which the devil and the father have a conversation that ends up playing out in Job's life. So we're gonna read here, Job chapter number one. We'll start in verse number six. The Bible says this. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came with them. Now, the setting for this whole episode that we're going to read is the heavenly throne room, okay? So God is on his throne in heaven, and the scripture tells us that the angels, the sons of God is another way to translate this. They show up here in front of God's throne room. He is essentially holding an all-staff meeting, okay? He's gathering together everybody that works for him, and uh, he, he is requiring them to either report for duty or to report on their duties. I don't know which it is. He is probably both. He's, they're going to tell him what they have been doing, and then he's going to give them new assignments. It's that kind of situation that's described here in, in verse number six. But what I want you to understand is that um, when all of these heavenly beings, these angels assemble themselves before God, God is the one who's in control. You need to understand that God is the one who's in control. The only person that is sovereign, the only person that is all powerful in this situation, the one to whom everyone else answers is the one who's sitting on the throne. It is God himself. We'll circle back to that thought a few times throughout our discussion this morning. Now, the first thing that probably sticks out in your mind when we read this verse together is that the verse says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan also came with them. Uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, I, when I'm putting together my slides for the week, I don't know why you guys, but I have this unbelievable skill of misspelling words. I am really good at spelling. Okay. I pride myself on spelling well, but for some reason on these stupid slides, I really struggle. And so we actually have a team. It's our screens team. And part of their job each week is I submit all the slides to them on Thursday or Friday so they can go through and be like, bro, you misspelled this. I'm sorry. We need to fix this so that I don't get embarrassed on Sunday morning. So anyway, I submitted our slides this week and somebody on the slides team was like, uh, did you mean to include the word the in front of Satan here in verse number six? That's really weird. I don't think that's right. It is right. It is right. Okay. The Satan is actually the way that this is written in Hebrew in every single instance. So anytime you read in the book of Job or actually throughout all of the Old Testament, you'll read in the English Bible, well, one day the angels came before God and Satan was with them. But in Hebrew, what it actually says is, and the Satan was with him. Again, that's weird because we don't normally use the definite article in English when we're referring to somebody by name. So nobody's going to leave today, go to lunch and say, yeah, the Daniel preached today at church. It's like, that's weird. It makes no sense. We don't talk like that, right? Okay. So why does this verse and all the others in the Old Testament call him the Satan instead of Satan? Are you ready for this? You might not even know this. This could be mind blowing to some of you. Satan is not the devil's name. Satan is not the devil's name. It's his title. 
This is his title. It is his role. This is what he does in the world. So the Hebrew word Satan, which in English we Satan, all right? Satan, Satan, is a Hebrew word that means the enemy, the adversary, or the accuser. The enemy, the adversary, or the accuser. So every time we read about Satan in the book of Job, especially here in verses, uh, chapters one through two, we can substitute those words to gain a more proper understanding of what he's trying to accomplish in this story. And hey, in our story as well, his job, his role, his goal is this, to oppose God and to try to frustrate his plans. Everything he does is towards that end. So look at verse number seven. Okay, one day the angels come in and the Bible tells us that the Satan sneaks in with them. So the Lord said to the Satan, the enemy, the adversary, the accuser, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth upon it. Now, as New Testament believers, our minds should immediately be drawn to what the apostle Peter tells us. First Peter 5, 8, he says, you need to watch out, be on guard because your enemy, the devil is like a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. In fact, it's pretty com- I'm pretty confident that Peter had this particular verse in the book of Job in mind when he references Satan later on. So the Lord says to him, what have you been up to? Give me a status report. Tell me what you've been busy doing. And he says, well, I've been going back and forth across the earth. Now, verse eight, check this out. Then the Lord said to the Satan, the adversary, the enemy, the accuser, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and uh, uh, shuns evil, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So what I want you to notice here, okay, and I always got this confused. I never, for the longest time, I misunderstood this detail. It's actually God that mentions Job's name first. It's not like the devil is like down on earth and he's hatching this plan. He's like, ooh, I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna trap his favorite son named Job. I'm gonna go up there and I'm gonna, I'm gonna set the trap and then I'm gonna spring it on him and it's gonna get God, it's gonna get Job. This is so, no, actually when you read the text, the order is very clear. God says to the accuser, have you noticed? Have you considered? Have you ever thought about my servant, Job? Now, when God says it this way, it's very much like God is proud of Job, honestly. Like you you can just get a sense that God is thinking to himself, man, this dude, he is right. He is straight. Like he is blameless. He's upright. He's righteous. He shuns evil. He fears me. And I would love it if God would brag on me like that. How cool would that be? If God was just up in heaven, he's like, man, look at Daniel, that guy, he is so good. Like he genuinely loves me. He loves me for the right reasons. His life is in order. I am so proud of him. I would love it if God would brag on me like that. But I gotta be honest, I get a little uncomfortable with the idea that God would bring my name up to Satan, okay? I don't like that very much. I'm kind of like, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of attention that I'm trying to draw down here on earth, God. Let's just leave him out of it. Leave me out of your conversations with him. I like the idea that you could be proud of me, God, but I don't like the idea that you could highlight me to my enemy, to my spiritual enemy, okay? Now, what I want to point out is that it seems really clear that God, um, if, you, if you look at the details, you can be like, oh man, well, if God hadn't said anything, 
then Job would have never gone through any of this, right? This is kind of God's fault now. I used to think it must be Satan's fault, but now it seems to be God's fault because he's the one that brought him up. But I think it's um, in God's sovereignty, he knew that Satan had already been eyeballing Job. See, in a minute, he's going to talk about Job with Satan and Satan's going to start rattling off all these details, right? And the reason he knows those details about the man named Job is because he had already had his eyes on. So God already knew that Satan had his eyes on Job. And he said, well, let's talk about Job for a minute. Have you considered him? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears me. He shuns evil. Okay. Look at what it says in verse number nine. Does God, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Does Job fear God for nothing? Now, this one line is actually the crux of the entire book of Job. Everything that we're going to read about, everything that happens, all the conversations, the, the ending of the book, everything that happens hangs on this one question. Does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Do people serve God for nothing or do they serve God out of self-interest? Every bit of this book is an attempt to answer that question. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has, Satan says. Some of y'all don't even realize the only person in the Bible that ever talked about a hedge of protection was the devil himself. I'm not telling you not to pray for a hedge of protection, okay? I'll point out that a hedge is pretty easy to get through though, okay? Raccoons just go right through that. So I'm thinking a hedge is not going to be enough to keep the devil out either. Anyway, that's a tangent. We'll leave it alone. Does Job fear God for nothing? Is he serving you because it's right or is he serving you because you've blessed him and protected him? He goes on to say, Satan does to God, you have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and Job will surely curse you to your face. Okay. Remember what I told you in the first week of this series. Although Job has trials, in the book of Job, God is the one on trial. Everything about this story is designed from the accuser to impugn God's motives, to impugn Job's motives, to uh, say that God, God doesn't run the world according to justice or wisdom, that people don't serve God because they really love him. They serve him out of self-interest. Everything about this is putting God and his policies in the world on trial. You see that very, very um, clearly in this statement by the accuser. He says, of course, Job has been faithful because you've bought his faithfulness with prosperity. You have bought his good behavior, God, by blessing him. In the New Testament, sometimes the devil is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of me and you, okay? But in this passage, he's actually functioning as the accuser of the father. He's functioning as the accuser of the father. I don't want to give the devil like any respect, okay? No credit because no credit is due. But I have to say, this is honestly not a terrible trap that he's setting. Okay, this is not a terrible plan or strategy here because, stay with me, if God had refused to allow Job to be afflicted, then we would all be left to wonder, well, do we serve God for the right reasons or just because he blesses us and protects us? We, do we really serve him just out of self-interest or because God is worthy of being loved and served on his own? But here's the thing, if God agrees to afflict Job, which is what he does, 
then countless believers throughout history are going to question God's goodness as a result. So like no matter which way God goes, we don't have a great outcome. Uh, the, the biblical scholar, John Walton, he puts it this way in, in his book called How to Read Job. As soon as I was doing study for the book and I was looking at different resources, it was like, how to read Job? And I'm like, yes, please, bye, um, because I want to know how to read it well. This is what he said. He said, these two challenges set up the focus of the book as it pertains to God's policies in the world. It is not good policy for righteous people to prosper, for that undermines the development of true righteousness by providing an ulterior motive. But in tension with that, it's not good policy for righteous people to suffer because they're good people, the ones who are on God's side. So what is God to do? This is the tension of the book. This is the, this is the question that it's going to try to get. I told you in week one, we think the question, of the, uh, the question of the book of Job is like, why do good people suffer? That's not the question that it's trying to answer. The question it is trying to answer is, why does God let anybody suffer? Or why does God bless anybody in the first place? That's what we're dealing with. So for reasons we won't discover until later in the book, about three weeks from now in our sermon calendar, God says this in uh, Job chapter one, verse 12. Last verse we'll read out of this section today. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So we're not going to take the rest of the time to read it, of course, but after God gives this permission to the devil to, to afflict Job, he suffers the loss of his wealth, the loss of his reputation, the loss of his 10 children. My goodness. Then in chapter number two, this interaction, this conversation in the throne room between God and the Satan, it repeats itself again verbatim, except this time the devil gets God to agree to go one step further. Whereas in chapter one, God said, you can take away anything he has, but you can't hurt him. In chapter number two, he says, you can take away anything he has and you can afflict his health, but you can't take his life. So he goes even a step further after all of this. It's this really, really difficult section and passage. And frankly, after I read this, I've got more questions than when I started with. Remember when I talked about reading the Bible with an inquisitive mind? Man, Asking one question leads to three questions, leads to eight questions, okay? But just based on what we've read so far, just based on these six or so verses, there are actually a few very, very helpful theological conclusions that we can draw and some personal application that we can make in regards to the role that Satan might play in our world today and more specifically in our lives day to day, okay? So for example... One of the theological truths that we read from this passage is the reminder that the devil is not God's equal. The devil is not God's equal. Let me say it one more time. The devil is not God's opposite equal. <laughs> we, we live in a world in which people often talk about the devil as if he were God's opposite equal, right? He is the yin to God's yang. He is the dark while God is the light. God is white. The devil is black and darkness. God is life. The devil is death. We think of them scientifically. It's like, oh, God is matter and the devil is antimatter. They exist in some sort of a cosmic balance. No. That sort of dualism, that finds its roots in Eastern religions like Taoism and Buddhism, but that is not biblical. Right. That is not what the scripture teaches. According to the Bible, there is one who is wise. 
There is one who is immortal. There is one who is sovereign. There is one who is father. There is one who is truly God. There is one that is eternal. There is one that is always good. There is only one God. The devil is not God's equal and opposite. And so when we, when we in our own minds or from our own culture, we get this idea that's like, oh, God, the devil's on one side and Jesus is on the other. No, they don't sit in equal standing. Right. They don't speak with equal authority. Right. They don't have equal power. The devil is not God's polar opposite. Let me prove it to you. Just from this passage. Oh, remember that when you read the Bible inquisitively, you start to discover gold that's buried in these verses. You know, people come to me all the time. And they're like, Dan, I just don't understand how you get this stuff out of the Bible. I just start asking questions about every verse I read and I don't quit. I just keep asking. Let me show you. Verse number six, Job chapter one, verse six, the Bible says one day the sons of God came in, the angels came before God. So it lists Satan as one of the sons of God, an angel. Do you understand? That makes him a created being. That means there was a time in which the devil did not exist. Lucifer had not been created. He is a finite being. That ain't true of God. God is uh, he is everywhere, all existent. He is the self-existent one. We sang the song today, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. There was never a time in which God was not. There will never be a time in which God is not. The devil had a moment. He had a birthday, if you're with me. The devil's actually going to have a death day as well if we go to Revelation, but hey, we'll talk about that later. So verse, uh, verse six of chapter number one, we find out God is eternal, but the devil, he's a created one. Verse number seven, God asks Satan where he's been. And Satan responds, I've been patrolling the earth. Have you ever noticed? Nobody ever asks God, God, where you been? Where, where you been? What have you been up to? Why? because there is nowhere that God is not. He is omnipresent, okay? So the devil is down here on earth right now, roaming around this way and that way. God's like, yeah, I'm already there. And at the same time, I'm up here in heaven and I'm in the past and I'm in the future and I'm with them on this side of the planet and I'm way out on the moon of Jupiter. Y'all ain't even got there yet. One day you'll get there and you'll find out I'm there too. So even in this verse, Satan is acknowledging that he is limited in his time and space because he's a created being, not our God. God is not, uh, uh, the devil is not God's equal and opposite. If we go on to verse number eight, God asks Satan, have you noticed, have you ever taken notice of my servant Job? Why does God have to ask that question? Because there are things that the devil has never noticed. Okay. There are things he doesn't know. God is all knowing. There is not a single fact. There is not a single truth. There is not a single possibility that has ever existed or will ever exist that God is not fully aware of right now. God does not learn. He does not gain new information. He is all-knowing in every sense of the word. But he can look at a created being like Lucifer and say, hey, have you ever noticed? Because there are a lot of things Lucifer has never, ever noticed. He does not have the level of knowledge, even close to, to the level of knowledge that God has. One more example, verse number 12. Notice that Satan had to get God's permission 
to harm even one donkey in Job's flock. Like, like to get permission to do anything, God had to say very well then, he's in your hands, do with him as you, as you please. God is the one who is completely sovereign. The devil only is able to do what God permits. And so we've got to be really careful that we don't give too much respect to the devil. Okay. I, listen, the devil is real. The devil can be dangerous. We don't need to pretend like he is some cartoon and silly and we shouldn't take him seriously. The, Jesus says in John 10, 10, there is a thief. There is a thief. And that thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But sometimes in our minds, because of our sinfulness or because of what we've heard from culture, we tend to build Satan up and we imbue him with powers and authorities and abilities that the scripture absolutely does not say that he has. He is not God's equal and opposite. So think about how this might play out for just a moment. If the devil is a finite being, and like you and I, he can only be in one place at one time. If the devil is here attacking me, the devil is not on the other side of the planet attacking your cousin in the Philippines. Like, that's just, like, that is, it's just science, people, okay? <laughs> if he's limited to one place at a time. That means he's not everywhere. You know, we, we act like the, literally the devil's in, he's behind every corner and he's under every rock and everything that goes wrong, it's like, the, that's the devil. He's there, he's there, he's there. No, he's not. No, he's not. Now you might say, okay, but the devil has his army of angels, right? He's got all of these demons that can do his bidding. And so maybe the devil is not attacking me. And Frank, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Uh, my, if, uh, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, because I'm a pastor, but anyway, <laughs> I was at the Stamps game. Ooh, I was tempted to do the 50-50 yesterday, but I didn't. Anyway, if I was a betting man, my bet is not a single one of us have ever had an encounter with the devil himself. Now, we may have had encounters with his minions, with demons. But we have no idea how many demons there are. A lot of scholars, Jewish scholars and Christian scholars throughout the years, they've, they've conjectured that God created like several hundred thousand angels and demons of which, a, you know, several hundred thousand angels of which a third of them fell and became demons, okay? We don't even know if that's accurate or not, but how many single people are on the planet? Like eight Billy? There's a lot. So it's entirely possible. And we also know from the book of Matthew that angels can't reproduce. They have to be created by God themselves. So it's not like, you know, girl demon falls in love with boy demon. They make a cute little baby demon. No, it's not how it works. <laughs> so here's the thing. Finite creatures, finite powers. We serve an infinite God. Yeah. Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay. He doesn't have all knowledge. Remember I told you that. God has all knowledge. The devil doesn't have all knowledge. Do you realize this? The devil cannot read your thoughts. That's right. Like, the devil cannot read your thoughts. Jesus read people's thoughts all the time. <laughs> devil can't do that. The devil cannot place thoughts in your brain. He, he can't. Like, show me 
where that is in the scripture. Now we can get into demonic possession and I think the devil can uh, take control in some ways of our lives, but I think we get really skewed and we, we look for the devil in every bad thing, every bad thought, and that ends up very negatively skewing our perception of the spiritual world around us. Just consider for a moment, okay? What James chapter number four, verse seven says, James four, seven says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. So, so simple, so direct, so confident. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. All you have to do is resist and the devil will run. You might be thinking, I'm not strong enough to fight the devil. Not me. No, no, no. But this power does not come from you. It comes from the spirit of God living inside of you. Again, John 4, 4, greater is, uh, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The savior is stronger than the Satan. Deity is stronger than the demons. The gospel of John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Colossians tells us that on the cross, Christ disarmed the devil. And in the resurrection, he made a spectacle of him. He chained him and led him on a victory parade. Christ dunked on the devil. So why are we allowing ourselves to be distressed by an enemy that has already been defeated? Satan is not God's equal opposite. He doesn't have the powers He doesn't have the abilities. He doesn't have the capacity to do a lot of the things that we try to give him credit for. He is not God's equal. We must not ever forget that. But there's another truth that we learn from this passage. And this one, it stings a little, okay? I'm just gonna be honest with you. This one is a little harder to swallow, but it's really, really important. I think we learn from Job's story. We learn from the rest of the scripture as well. The person who is most likely to destroy my life is me. Yep. Is me. You've probably heard the phrase before, well, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it, right? If your kid tells you that, you're like, Get, come on now, all right? Reading the book of Job, you might assume that because the devil was so involved in the misery and the difficulty that Job went through, that when we go through misery, when we go through hard times, then it must be the devil's fault. He must be the one who is responsible. But we've got to remember Job's circumstances are absolutely unique in human history. So when you sit around, you read the book of Job and you're like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to happen to me? Almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. You're not that special. Neither am I. I say this lovingly. We get freaked out and we're like, oh my gosh, the the devil is going to ruin my marriage. No, you know what's going to ruin your marriage? Your own lusts and addictions. Oh, the the devil's going to drive my kids away. No, you know what's going to ruin your kids and drive them away? Your unaddressed anger problems. Oh, the devil, he's going to tear our church apart. No, you know what's going to tear our church apart? People who gossip about one another or aren't friendly to each other. The person who's most likely to ruin my life, our church, God's plans in the world, believe it or not, it isn't the devil. It's me. It's you. We are our own worst enemies. If you don't believe me, I can prove it to you from the New Testament. 
James chapter number one, verses 13 to 15. I really, again, we're talking about reading the scripture with a lot of curiosity, okay? So I want you to read this passage with a lot of curiosity. Verse number 13, James chapter one, the Bible says this. Remember, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Now, if we stop right there, you're probably like, yeah, okay, cool. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Thankfully, God will never tempt me to do the wrong thing. I'm glad for that. And then we expect that James is going to tell you about the tempter, right? He's going to tell you about the one who exists and he lives to be your adversary and your enemy and your opponent and your accuser and how he's the one who you've constantly got to be on guard on. And he's the one that can destroy. Look at what he actually says. He says, temptation comes not from the tempter, not from the devil, but instead temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sinful actions are allowed to grow, they give birth to death. What we learn from the scripture is that the primary source of temptation is not external, it's internal. The thing that I need to be real scared of is inside of me already. It's my sinful nature. It's that inclination inside of me to do the things that I know are damaging and unhealthy and unhelpful. It, we, we tend to say, oh, it's the devil. It's external. He's the one that I've got to watch out for. And if we buy into that, you know what we'll start to do? We will externalize all of our other temptations and we will start to say, oh, it's the things outside of me that are the problem. It's my husband that's the problem. It's my neighbor that's the problem. It's my, my boss that's the problem. We can tend to blame all of these external forces. And listen, the devil is real. There is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you're more likely to give in to your own desires than you are to his schemes and wiles. What we really need to do is to take every thought captive. What we really need to do is crucify our flesh. What we really need to do is die to our old ways of life. Because the devil is there and he's going to use our internal desires to tempt us. But hear me now. We won't stand before God one day and say, oh, well, you can't hold me accountable. The devil made me do it. Doesn't work that way. So what we learn from Job's story here, from the rest of the scripture as well, is that without Christ, okay, without Christ, we are constantly under threat from demons and desires. External factors, yes, internal factors primarily. And if we are not on guard, if we don't actually take this seriously, then we may allow the thief to steal, to kill and destroy. That's the bad news. But we don't talk in church about the bad news. We talk about the gospel, the good news. And the good news is, Although there is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life and life in abundance, life that overflows. Let me show you what the book of Galatians says. Chapter number three, uh, chapter one, rather, verses four through five. He, he says, as Paul writes this, he says, Jesus gave his life 
for our sins, just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. That phrase in the New Testament, evil world, it applies to the evil in the world and it applies to the evil in us as well. God allowed Jesus, he ordained Jesus to give his life in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live all glory to the Father forever and ever, amen. You can read the book of Job particularly chapters one and two, and you can get hung up on everything that happened and you can start to stress and freak out. Like, is God ever going to do this to me? And how much of of my problems and my issues is really the devil attacking me? And ah, I'm overwhelmed. And ah, listen, the truth that you should be living under is not that you are afflicted. The truth that you should be living under is that you have been rescued. That God has done everything that is necessary to rescue you to redeem you, to take you out of the evil that's in you, to take you out of the evil that's in the world so that you are not on your own. You are not unprotected, but instead your father has has come down to earth to rescue and to redeem you, to purchase you with the blood of Jesus so that you don't have to freak out about this sort of stuff. So that you don't have to worry about living for the devil or living for God. You've got the spirit of God inside of you empowering you to live for him every single day. Man, when I think about that, I echo the words of Galatians 1.5, all glory to God the Father forever and ever. Amen. Now, my guess is there are those of you that are here and you've experienced this, you know it. So my challenge to you is to live out of that truth every single day. God is greater than any temptation you're ever going to face. God is greater than any demon that might ever come along in your, in your circumstances. But if you don't know that, if this is news, good news to you, all you have to do is say yes to receive Jesus into your heart. That's it. That's all it takes. We say yes to him as our Lord and our Savior. And the Bible says that God reaches down, he snatches us from our mess that we've created. And he sets our feet on the solid ground. He gives us new life, new hope, new purpose. If you want to receive that today, I'm going to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. You might pray this simple prayer just between you and God after me. Dear Jesus, I need to be rescued. So today I accept you as my savior and I choose you as my Lord. Thank you for loving me enough to die for me. God, help me to live for you every day moving forward. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen.